Oh man, thanks Trish. Good morning everybody. Morning, how are you all doing? <coughs> so we're looking at Philippians. Um, I won't um, spend all our time in Philippians 2, but I'm going to spend probably half the time just going in a little bit of a background to it. See, Paul is a man completely sold out for Christ. He was a man who once thought he was good enough for heaven, good enough for God. But there came a point in his life when Jesus met with him and his world was turned upside down. His views and understanding of what made a person good was turned on its head and he saw that his life was a mess. He felt the filth of his sin in the light of God's holiness. But Christ met him whilst he was a sinner, even a murderer of believers. Christ offered him a righteousness that was not his own, a gift of grace, a righteousness that gave him hope because it meant fellowship with God was now a reality, something that he could not achieve by himself, a righteousness that released him from the judgment of God against all sinners. Christ, for Paul, was now something so precious that, he, that everything he may have gained outside of him, he regarded as rubbish, literally dung. He counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ his Lord. Christ thrills Paul. Not only is Christ's righteousness his, but in Christ he can now enjoy love and fellowship with God, the creator, the source of life. And every good thing, he now knows the power of God in Christ working in his life to transform him. This was the good news of the gospel. See, Paul understands that the gospel is not merely a ticket to heaven, but a deeper fellowship with God. A mystery and a life that needs working out in fear and trembling. He knows it's an eternal opportunity to explore the glory of God and to enjoy him forever as a man reborn. Paul is transformed into a thoroughly gospel man dedicating every ounce of strength to knowing Christ and for others to know him too. See, the gospel controls his thoughts and his actions. It gives him strength when he's persecuted and it delights him when he sees the power of the gospel at work in others. <coughs> so why talk so much 
about Paul. Because I think for a start that by reminding ourselves about him will just help us to understand the letter and intention that he writes to the Philippians. A, a letter in which he wears his heart on his sleeve. See, he talks a lot in the letter about his esteem and love for Jesus and his personal desire for him and for a relationship with him. And he uses this to encourage and exhort the Philippians to pursue the same things that he is pursuing. To essentially follow him into greater joy in the Lord by living in a manner worthy of the gospel. And we see that exhortation in the passage this morning. He asks them to complete my joy in the beginning of verse 2. This doesn't mean that he was kind of lacking or missing some joy, but he simply wanted more of it. Let it overflow, he is essentially saying. So what does it mean for, for, uh, for Paul, a, a man consumed with Jesus and the gospel above and in all things to ask a church to complete his joy? See, how can a church complete uh, that which he already has in Jesus? I will explore and look into this question a little more. See, Paul has already said that the Philippians give him joy. Chapter 1 tells us that despite being imprisoned, he was full of joy when he thought of them and when he pray was praying for them. And the reason that he gives is that they are partners in the gospel and partakers of God's grace, grace in verses 4 and 7. They say the same things in just slightly different ways. See, the NIV uses the word share in God's grace, which could suggest that <coughs> God's grace given to us in the gospel can be uh, divided up, just as if we were like sharing sweets amongst us. Here, you know, you have some gospel, and here's some gospel for you, and some gospel, you can have some gospel too, and so on. But the word he uses in verse 7, that's Paul, the, uh, the word that he uses, is more helpfully translated as partakers in the ESV. Instead of sharing, he says partake. And can you see the subtle difference? See, by being spoken as partakers, it shows Paul's understanding of the gospel is so much more than a personal faith. The gospel has never meant to be taken away back home separately and then to be applied in an isolated way to our individual lives. The gospel is something that we share in and not take out for ourselves. And if this is true, then the more our, uh, we live our lives by that, the more that we participate in it, the more our lives will fulfill the intended outcome of salvation in Jesus Christ and to glorify him. 
See, the Philippian church gets this broad and deep view of the gospel of Christ. And it gives Paul great joy. Just to emphasize that point, look again back to verses 4 and 5. He says, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I looked again at what that word partnership meant. Look back to the Greek. And it's that word koinonia, which we have heard. And it's translated many places as the word fellowship. And like I said, we have considered that word fellowship in previous sermons. And it speaks of that communion, of a communion, an intimate relationship of people coming together. This koinonia partnership in the gospel therefore cannot be reduced to a simple working together or a practical arrangement to do gospel work, whatever that may be. See, Christ is glorified when there is an effectual receiving of the gospel. That is, when the gospel results in the intended effect, a kinship demonstrated wonderfully by the Philippians in the way that they allowed the gospel to shape their lives, producing in them a real loving concern for Paul. And that is why Paul delights in them, because they see what he sees in Jesus. They're desiring Jesus in the way that he desires Jesus. And so are finding themselves caught up together in living out the gospel life, sharing in the grace of God. See, this togetherness or fellowship is essential to Paul's joy. And there can only ever be one kind of togetherness in Jesus. And that is worthy of the gospel. Christ is not glorified by people solely meeting together under his name. True communion in Christ involves life that is lived out in relationship with one another too. In verse 2 of chapter 2, Paul says, complete my joy. So then what, what does that mean? It means to live out the gospel. Don't just consent to it. And what does that look like? Well, Paul spells it out for us in the rest of our passage in chapter 2. And it looks like love in fellowship. See, this is how the Apostle John <coughs> defines love. This is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his only son, his one and only son, into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So love demonstrated and defined by God is preferring the needs of another above your own. <coughs> it means sacrifice. Giving up of oneself for the sake of another. 
It's a servant love. And this demonstration of love is what we read in verses 6 to 8 of Philippians 2. This is the love of God. And Paul is calling us together to have the same disposition, the same inclination to love that our thoughts and feelings towards one another exhibit the servant love of God shown in Christ. Verse 2 says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. That seems, uh, and I would suggest actually is, an enormous task. To love like God. And yet this is what is required to fellowship in the gospel. And it's in a way that one might not expect. See, it doesn't require faith of a super Christian. Someone who has it all sewn up, whose face glows every Sunday morning. And they can't remember the last time they ever doubted or struggled in their faith because it was so long ago. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, see any amount Notice that in verse 1, Paul refers each time to an attitude or an emotional response to aspects of the gospel, whether it's encouragement or comfort, fellowship, tenderness or compassion. It's not about how good you are at being a Christian or how much you do, The question he's asking is, has the gospel touched your heart? Has it gone from here down to here? Do you feel encouraged to be in Christ? The reality that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or the fact that nothing can separate us from the love of uh, of God in Christ. Does that stir up in you any morsel of encouragement. If this is the case, then we have the necessary basis to, in effect, complete Paul's joy by putting love into action. Well, if you feel that what Paul is asking is too much because it seems beyond you, then be encouraged. Don't be daunted. Because God can work this in you, regardless of the measure of your faith. You just need to say to God, I want to do this, I want to obey. Alternatively, if you feel that what Paul is asking is too much of you, full stop, then be careful. See, this exhortation to love one another is for all believers of any maturity, of any degree of zeal. Do nothing, Paul says, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. 
rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Selfish ambition, self-centered ambition. I think you only need to just be a Christian for a short while to understand that this selfish ambition is in opposition to the gospel. It's in, it opposes what the gospel is about. We've already thought about how the gospel is concerned with sharing and fellowship. And yet, are we guilty of selfish ambition? See, we live in a world in which we cannot ignore the fact that selfish ambition is upheld as a good thing. And we have to admit that the world does exert an influence on us, and sometimes in subtle ways. And so it's a healthy exercise for us to weigh up our motives when we do something. See, selfish ambition wants to elevate ourselves above, other, above others. See, the, the television uh, schedules is rife, aren't they, with talent shows and singing contests. And it feeds on the desire to elevate oneself above others. It's not so much about the singing, but the desire for fame and all the attention and devotion that comes with it. You just need to ask the contestants and they will tell you. See, the backdrop to our society has a political and economic uh, system that is based on capitalism. A system motivated by profit and not to satisfy the needs of all people. It rewards selfish ambition with money and success. The question has to be, is there any evidence of the world's influence in us. So what can selfish ambition look like within church? How can we recognize it? Can you remember a time when you spoke to someone in a way that caused them to feel small? Because there's only two, there's, there's only two ways in which selfish, selfish ambition shows itself. You either build yourself up or tear other people down. And there is no quicker way of putting someone down than a short, sharp use of the tongue. Criticism. Not critique, but criticism. Especially when you know people are vulnerable. When you know that it will damage when they hear it. Gossip. That damages how people regard other people. What about giving out a false impression of who you really are? Because you want people to think well of you. Isn't that a form of selfish ambition too? (coughs) Do nothing out of selfish ambition and neither out of vain conceit. Vain conceit, I found out, is a little harder to work out. If selfish ambition is wanting to be more than you are, conceit is thinking that you already are there, but in fact are not. Essentially, do not consider yourself greater than you actually are. And there are many ways that can bloat one's self-esteem beyond what it actually is. 
a successful career is one of them, or holding a position of influence or importance. It is not right to do or say anything having this kind of um, attitude. To come across to others that they need to hear your voice because you are important. And consider experience. Having done something many times could lead one to believe that they are an authority in certain matters. I think there is a danger, not always, but there is a danger to consider oneself too highly because of the amount of experience we may have had. We are not to do anything out of vain conceit. So perhaps we should consult at least someone else before we do what we think is right. Recognizing in humility that though we have experience, what we may do or may want to do might not be right before the Lord. What is happening though when I when I do things out of selfish ambition or conceit? So what I'm doing, I, I'm demonstrating that my identity in Christ is not enough. That the gospel is not the cause for my joy. I've forgotten that being in Christ and in fellowship with all believers is something to progress in and strive for. See, as the gospel diminishes in my life, I am left with just myself. And so I care for myself because I'm precious and I love myself. And there's nothing else to shape my attitude and direct my attention to anything or anyone else except for myself. I will become selfishly ambitious and hang on to my empty pride because there's nothing else to replace it. We should all be wary of a diminishing influence of the gospel in our lives. And I don't mean just our personal lives, but consider the lives of all our brothers and sisters. It's a kind of call to, to keep pushing on into Christ, not to ease up, but to bring to bear the wonderful gospel truth to each other's lives, and to get excited by it, and to know joy in it. See, Paul has told us what not to do, but he also tells us what we should do. So there are things we should avoid, and now there are things to be proactive in. And so we come back to consider the detail of the servant love of God. We are to have the same mind as Christ and and live lives in the gospel fellowship with his humility, with his love. And this word mind carries uh, with it a, uh, a sense of both mind and heart, kind of the understanding and will and affections towards it. See, lives lived that are worthy of the gospel glorifies Christ and therefore completes Paul's joy are ones where we count others more significant than ourselves. That the interests of others take pride of place in our lives. We are all very much aware that this is not how the world operates. 
We need, therefore, to learn from Christ because we are of this world. Consider Christ then. Look at his example, says Paul. So Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That shameful death. This servant love of Christ is where the divine attributes of of God's character meets a very real practical outworking. See, Christ's example cannot be matched. No one could give up as much as he did for a people as unworthy as we are. But this means that it not only serves us as the greatest example, but it is the source of all humility. See, we are not worthy of God's grace. Yet he has placed on us an unmerited value. He has esteemed us beyond all things. By sending his son. And that's humbling. He considered our interests. And so emptied himself of all but his divine nature. And died in our place. For our sakes. And he did this because he loves you. He loves me. And we just need to look at Paul's life, don't we? To see how this has worked out for him. How he finds joys in others who share in this same grace of God. As I was uh, preparing, I was, considered, I was considering what these interests that Paul talks about are. <coughs> these interests that Paul asks for us to look in others rather than ourselves. And so I went and did back to the original Greek to see what the word was and how it was translated. And I found that the word interests is only just a kind of placeholder because there is no word in the Greek to be translated. It leaves interests, how the translators have put it, a a kind of rather vague thing. So you could read it this way. Not looking to your own but to each of you, the others. See, this keeps open, wide open the areas in which we can invest ourselves in the good of others. And this is to take priority above our own interests, whatever they may be. And this is a radical, a really radical way of living. Just think about it. What would you do for yourselves? Think how we would invest our time, how we plan and schedule, what things we would save and what things we would forego for the sake of our own interests. Whether that's to do with our money, homes, health, happiness, well-being, whatever. And that applies to both a minute-by-minute to a year-by-year timescale. Paul is saying... What you would do for yourself, do that for others. And let that take priority in your life. 
if the gospel touches our hearts in any measure, then this is what we are to do. This is the manner of life that is worthy of the, of the gospel of Christ. It means that we sacrifice what we want for the sake of others. In a very simple way. If your child wants to play with you, but you've had a long day at work and you're just ready to flop and have a bit of me time, it's then that you honour Christ in your body by looking to the interests of the child, to the joy of the child spending time with his father. It can mean that you have to reschedule your plans to make yourself available to serve others. I'm sure we reschedule our plans all the time for our own sakes, but do we do it for the interests of others? Love in action is to, in humility, count others more significant than ourselves and to look to the interests of others before our own. This is to be the distinctive outworking of the gospel. Because the gospel is not like sweets for us to take away. A bit of gospel here for you, a bit of gospel for you. Go and enjoy it. It's not about that. But it is of this koinonia fellowship, this koinonia partnership, intimate, loving fellowship in Christ. Let's consider our lives and look to complete Paul's joy by living out more and more the gospel of our Saviour for our joy and his honour. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. May you bring it to us and may it go from our heads to our hearts and affect us in radical ways, we pray. Amen.